Cock, balls, and load. I'm glad we're talking about firearms. I'm Joe Fulgham. Do you feel caustic, punk? Well, do you? I'm Kevin Leeson. This episode promises to be of the highest caliber. I'm Torin Atkinson. Welcome to Caustic Soda. Today on Caustic Soda, we're going to be talking about small arms. All right. So that's thalidomide babies and yeah. Tyrannosaurus rexes. Yeah. This is our thalidomide baby and T-Rex episode that you've all been waiting for, the long-anticipated one. Yeah, the ones that go pop and fire projectiles at, like, the speed of sound at you. Tell me more about this dinosaur. <laughs> that's yeah. only when you step on its head. Well. He spoke. Who is he? It's Mike T. So, Mike, as a small arms enthusiast... Uh, what uh, what sort of your bona fides? What makes you a uh, an expert for us? Well, I have been involved in the shooting sports and firearms industry for the past three to four years now, and uh, I work with firearms every day. Gun comes from Old Norse Gunhildr, a woman's name, oh, which no. meant which was from Gunnar and Hildr, with which both mean war. Oh, okay, yeah. So war, war. Yeah, exactly. And Son of a Gun is originally nautical, and to jump the gun is, of course, from track and field. Yeah, that makes sense. The phrase lock, stock, and barrel, which means the whole thing, refers to the three main parts of a musket. The stock is the wooden base. The barrel is the tube where the musket ball or other ammunition accelerates and exits the weapon. The lock is the mechanism that causes the weapon to fire. Hoplophobia, from the Greek hoplon, meaning weapon or armor, is defined as the fear of firearms and as the fear of armed citizens. Oh, okay. Hoplophobia. Now I have a quiz. Okay. All right. Pop quiz. I love it. Uh, Some of these are historical terms. Oh, okay. I got a shot. Frizzin. That's what happens to your hair when you fire fully automatic weapons too much? (laughs) It's obviously a French term. I'm going to go with uh, the load on a flintlock. Uh, I think it is definitely old black powder stuff. Um, I think it's a the flint or something like that related to the firing mechanism of the old matchlocks or flintlocks. Oh, yeah. historically called the steel. It is an L-shaped piece of steel hinged at the rear, u- at the rear used in flintlock firearms. Bang. It is positioned over the flash pan so as to enclose a small priming charge of black powder next to the flash hole that is drilled through the barrel into where the main charge nice. is loaded. So, so I guessed the load, and he guessed the thing that lights the load, and he was right. I was Touch hole. Well, I think you actually. I think you. I think <laughs> Joe's you, just smiling. I think you actually used the term in the previous definition. So oh, no, that was the flash hole. Oh, the flash hole. <laughs> the flash hole is when you show it to somebody very quickly, and the touch hole is touch hole is touch hole is, is where you go to jail. Is only performed in bathrooms in New York nightclubs. <laughs> Is the touch hole where even older weapons, you would physically have to bring something lighted up with your hand to it to light the powder inside? I don't know. Let's ask Mike T. What do you think? Yes. That's what I, I, yeah, I agree with that. A small hole through which the propellant charge of a cannon or muzzle-loading gun is ignited. Ah, In small arms, the flash from a charge of priming held in the flash pan is enough to ignite the charge within. Yeah, you see that in old cannons mostly. Right. Got it. Ramrod. (laughs) Well, you got to put your ramrod in the touch hole. 
If you don't, you're not going to have much fun. <laughs> but again, that's actually diverging from small arms, isn't it? Oh, no, no, because the muskets have the ramrods, too. That's where you tamp the load and the, and the ball down. Yeah, ramrod is used to push the uh, ball and powder charge all the way down to the bottom of the musket. Cock. <laughs> you just like how sexually suggestive the entire firearms terminology is. Yeah, well, it's, the entire thing is double entendres. Well, you know, yeah. it is kind of a, a, a sort of penile substitute. I in know. Many ways. Next, he's going to ask us what "shoot your load" means. Right? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Cock is to pull back the, the the firing pin. It's an action. Although you might actually have a piece that does the same thing, and that's yeah. called the cock. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to agree with that. You cock something to ready it for firing. Yeah, you ready it for firing. Mm-hmm. Another name for the hammer. Yep. Yeah. So as we're recording this, it's actually a week after we went out to the gun range with Mike under his careful studio supervision. Yeah. And fired off a bunch of guns. And we will and we had that recorded. We have the not so much the shooting of the guns, but being there and our uh, before and after thoughts, thoughts and memories. And uh, so that will be part of this episode, which you will hear presently. We're at the gun range, about to start our small arms episode. As you where, may be able to tell. Yeah, in the background you can probably hear some uh, enthusiasts who are doing their thing. So what do you think, uh, Tony? Looking forward to firing your first firearm of all time? Uh, this podcast will be breaking my lifelong ambition to never fire a, uh, a firearm in my entire life. Yeah, we were actually told before we started recording that uh, to not use the term weapon by our guest today. Our guest is Mike. Hey, how's it going? So, uh, how uh, well, how long have you been dealing with uh, firearms your, in your young life? Uh, I've been shooting for about four years. I came into it rather late for, for my group of friends that shoot. I work at a store in Vancouver that sells firearms. I just got the bug, and I've been, it, I fell into this kind of work. So the gun bug great. is that what they call the it? Gun business. Uh, I was actually at a function in Surrey where there was a business thing for my dad, and this woman came up to me and was, "What do you do?" I'm involved in the international arms trade, was my response <laughs> <laughs> to her shock and dismay. Well, that's but, uh, pretty awesome to be able to utter those words. Yeah. That, that's cool. Yeah. Just want to talk a little bit what I brought up today. A uh, bit of a cross-section of, of the kind of firearms that I own. Um, I brought up uh, four handguns. One of them's my uh, 22 target pistol I used to shoot at 50 meters. Uh, it's a supermatic citation. It's from the... 50s or 60s, it's a classic American pistol. It uh, looks a little bit like a space what, gun. What famous people would have been using that? Well, it's a target pistol, yeah, right? Target so pistol. not many people, you don't really use it in movies to oh. shoot people. Yeah. It's, it's done purely to show that you're an accurate shooter. Yeah, oh, okay. it's so a competition pistol. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, so the Olympics. Yes. yes. But they don't have pistol shooting in the Olympics, do they? Uh, yes, I, th- I believe they still do. Yeah, okay. don't they have yeah. uh, some where they're skiing and the shooting at the same time? Yeah. 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 So there is that firearms yeah. competition. That's a rifle. Uh, what, what, so what else did you bring up for us to I try? I brought up my uh, Russian Tokarev pistol from World War II, Ooh, uh-huh. which was uh, used to fight off the Dirty Huns. Oh, nice. Uh, Actual uh, battle, uh, battle it's, hardened? Uh, it's impossible to say. It's, uh, it was in Russia while the war was raging. That's was, all we can say. It was made in 1941, so there's a good chance that it shot, saw its fair share of Germany. It was, it was made to be shot. Yeah. Probably be pretty unlikely that they made it and didn't use it in the four years that the war yeah. was Well, on. especially the Russians, because the Russians, there was that whole famous thing about they didn't have enough guns for the number of people in their armed forces. Yeah. So right. you would run behind a guy with a gun. When he fell, you'd pick up his rifle and keep going. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I've know. seen examples of... Uh, Russian rifles made during the war 
that the, 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 the craftsmanship and the finishing on them, they just totally went down the toilet. It's like, you can tell that this rifle was built in a factory that had Germans on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, take this and go to the other side and kill Hurry, Schnell, I mean, yeah. run. It's like an RTS video game. Yeah. Guys popping out of the factory and immediately defending it. Yeah. So uh, anything else really cool that we're going to shoot today? I've, I've got a modern pistol, a SIG P226. Uh, it's the, uh, what the Vancouver police use, actually, in a okay. different caliber, oh, wow. but the same pistol. Uh, and to fight off homeless people? Fight off homeless people and people wielding swords. Sure. You know, that and kind of hockey rioters. Hockey oh, rioters, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, my, the prize of my, my pistol collection, I've got a German Luger from World War I. Wow. So, Does it have a name? Uh, doesn't have a name. Oh. You have a name? Not, not well, we have names for all your guns by the end of this podcast. <laughs> you can name so. them whatever you want. <laughs> I vote we name that one Loogie. Loogie? <laughs> Loogie. It doesn't have any other uh, double entendre second meaning at all. Yeah. Okay. In, uh, it's unusual in Canada to find uh, a Luger that someone like me could own because uh, the, the way the laws are structured, there's uh, several classes of firearms. Uh, there's non-restricted, which covers mostly rifles and shotguns and that kind of stuff. And then there's Thanks for res- shooting antelope. Yeah, antelope, whatever, that kind of stuff. Charging bears. Charging bears, definitely. That's what you'd use a shotgun for, mostly. Uh, and then there's the restricted category, which is uh, mostly handguns, specific rifles. There's the prohibited category, and that includes short-barreled pistols, which have barrel length shorter than 4.2 inches, uh, automatic weapons, uh, that kind of stuff. That's all prohibited. People who owned these sorts of firearms before the laws changed are grandfathered into the classes that allow them to keep possessing them. Grandfathered? That's grandfathered, yep. Mm-hmm. So they, they can still possess that them. That means you got it from your grandfather. Yeah. Okay. Prohibited right. pistols you can still take to the range. Uh, prohibited uh, stuff like machine guns and stuff, they, they don't allow those to come out anymore. They just sit at your safe at home. Great. Uh, I brought up four rifles. Uh, two of them are bolt actions. Uh, one of them's a British Lee Enfield from World War One. So nice. now for those of us who, uh, well, I know what a bolt action is, but for yeah. those of our listeners who may not know what a bolt action is, how does that differentiate if uh, a regular semi-automatic? Uh, well, a bolt action is uh, one type of action where the user has to manually operate the action of the firearm every time that they want to shoot. Right. There's a couple of different types of actions that are manually operated. Lever action, pump action, they all, every time you shoot, you have to operate it before you put another bullet in there. So uh, in this case, a bolt action, there's a handle on the, on the side of the, the rifle. Turn that up, pull it back, push it forward, and turn it down, and it's loaded again. So from World War I movies, that's where we'd see the Lee Enfield play yeah. most of Gallipoli. Yeah. It features prominently in Gallipoli. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Charge of the Light Brigade, or that terrible movie, Passchendaele. It's in that. Lots so. of bolt action oh, yeah. Lee Enfields featured highly. Yeah, the British also used them in World War, World War II. And then another modernized version of it in, in World War II. Right. So, uh, but uh, it's got a it's a short rifle for the for the era. It's actually fairly short. The the full name is the short magazine Lee Enfield. Okay. SMLE. Okay. Got another bolt action rifle. It's a Swiss K11 carabiner ni- 1911. It's the carbine version of their long infantry rifle of the time. The long rifle I have one version of it, but I didn't bring it out. Is 50 and a half inches long. So it's enormous. That's, wow. Um, say, that's so long. you can also use it as a walking stick. Yeah. yeah. It's also a bolt-action rifle, but it's unusual in that it's a straight-pull action. So you, instead of turning the bolt up like you would with the Enfield, you just grab the cocking handle and pull it back and push it forward. So, wow. And it's okay. got some... Uh, the bolt has some lugs in there that follow a groove. 
and it turns the bolt as you're as you're pulling it back. Oh. And then when you push oh. it forward, it pushes it back in again. So it's like it's machines to do that at the same action yeah. as the Lee Enfield. Canada had a straight pull bolt action rifle at the beginning of World War One called the Ross rifle, yeah. uh, and they found it to be too uh, sensitive to dirt. It was a good rifle. They use it as a target rifle, and they use it as a sniper rifle. And then the two semi-autos I have, I've got a Swedish rifle from World War II called the AG-42. And it is, uh, it's renowned for being one of the most accurate semi-auto rifles out there, especially from the period. Uh, it's chambered in my favorite cartridge, 6.5 by 55 Swedish. A 6.5 millimeter? 6.5 millimeter is the diameter of the bullet, and yeah. then 55 millimeters is the, di- the length of the case. That's an odd caliber because like it kind of falls in between the 7.62 Eastern block and the 5.56 NATO block. Uh, in that time, a lot of the a lot of countries were fielding 6.5 millimeter firearms. Uh, okay. The Japanese, the Italians, they had all rifles chambered in 6.5 millimeter. Different cartridges for each rifle. But it was it was common back then. Okay. Uh, 6.5 Swede was actually used as the uh, the Olympic round up until 22 long rifle took over. Oh, okay. So it's a Did popular hunting that. rifle hunting rifle cartridge in Europe. And then my the fourth rifle I brought out is a uh, Czech VZ58 uh, or the the civilian version of it, the CZ858, and it's a semi-automatic. It's a military style rifle. Uh, in the in Czech service, it would have been a full automatic, but in Canada, it's been remanufactured, so it's a semi-automatic only. Great. Yeah. All right. So should we get up to the range? All right. So Torin, how did it feel? I feel like slightly less of a big pussy <laughs> now that I've fired off some rifles. All right. So it wasn't the end of the world for you? It was okay? No, but when the end of the world comes, I feel like I'm slightly more ready. Slightly. Yeah. yeah. You were so, a better shot than me. We'll just get that out there right now. Seeing as how uh, this is the first time I've ever fired a handgun, I thought it was fine. Yeah. I, I think I'm still more of a rifle guy. Yeah, I am too. I, yeah. The the pistols were, were fun, but uh, the rifles I, I really enjoyed a lot more. Although I think we can all agree that, uh, with the exception of Mike, our gun expert, yeah. I performed the best with the handgun. Yeah, it's almost like uh, experience with firing firearms <laughs> pays off. Shocking. Yeah, well, I didn't hit anybody else's targets, Joe. <laughs> the real question is why was Torin a better shot than me in most cases that is a very good that question it must be because I didn't have my glasses on <laughs> do you know what that actually happens a lot yeah with first time shooters they'll come out and they'll shoot really well because they don't they don't anticipate the recoil because they've never had any experience oh. with it yeah so uh, well Mike how do you think we did as uh, relative amateurs uh, I think you guys did well Especially with the pistol shooting, you guys were all on paper, and that's that's all you can ask for with a, with a first time shooting a pistol. Yeah. Except that yeah. Tokarev, it was all over the map. Well, that's yeah. just because it's a Tokarev. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what the thing is? I felt really good about the Tokarev. Like when we sh- when I shot it, I went, I think I was like five bullseyes on that one. Yeah. And then when we pulled the the thing off, and I was the Tokarev was just basically all around the entire perimeter of the yeah, yeah. of the target. It's it a combination was, of a of a poor, a poor design. Yeah. And uh, just old military surplus ammunition. It's not made to uh, mm. match specs or anything. It's just a Tokarev is just a blasting pistol. You have fun with it. So good. But for if a target-sized piece of paper was attacking you, you would <laughs> have killed it. If yeah. you were standing ready with the gun pointed in its direction and totally calm, you would have a chance of striking it once in a while. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it, I think it, in the heat of the moment, you might have even mentioned Mike. That was pretty much only good for execution-style suit shooting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's notorious for being a, an accurate pistol. Okay, so shoot into a large crowd. That's what yeah. you're saying. Don't try and take out one person individually. Yeah. It's for shooting your own soldiers that aren't rushing towards the drills. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Taking care oh, of that uh, makes a lot d- of deserters. Sense. It's good for deserters. Mm-hmm. 
It's kind of like a knife that you pull the trigger for. <laughs> well, that harkens back to the electro knife from our electricity episode. And I was always also impressed by the um, there weren't any weirdos there. Yeah, I, well, like I assumed that there would be a bunch of gun nuts. There were some gun nuts, nuts there. Yeah. yeah, but more like the gun nuts that you see on TV and on the internet, oh, wearing like, scary like gun yeah, nuts. coming up with, you know with no shirt and wearing camo pants and talking right. to their guns and all. Yeah, this other you're stuff. thinking survivalists, like kind of <laughs> Michigan <laughs> militia types, right? Yeah. But those guys go shoot on private ranges. They don't want to be. They don't want anybody to see what their ordinance is. They don't want anybody to know what they got. Oh, you know, I guess so. They don't go out to the public. That's range why they put them on around. YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah well, they, they wear their masks when they put it on YouTube, right? In my head the whole time, I was like, I don't want to be the one guy who fucks up and is unsafe. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to wait over here behind the firing line. Oh, I'm going to walk over very carefully. I'm not going to bump. Like, I was on, like, the whole time. On I was point. On, on point. tenterhooks? Yeah. Tenterhooks, yeah. yeah. I was ready to, oh, my God, I'm fucking up. I didn't want to lift well, the gun upright. I was thinking about trigger safety It's one of those hobbies that people can die if yeah. you do yeah. it incorrectly. That's you know? exactly it. Yeah, there it's are, funny because I work hobbies where you can actually kill, accidentally kill somebody else. You know, within and it will take a tenth of a second for it to happen. Right? I worked yeah. at a bank for almost a year, and the guy who um, I, was with, I was with a temp agency at the time, and the guy who was training us was like, "You know, if you fuck up, don't worry about it. I know it's a bank and everything, but nobody's going to die." Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that <laughs> when I was yeah. on the range. <laughs> if it, I fuck up, it's somebody might die, and it might be me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's that's why from the from the get go, at least in Canada here, they drill into you the the safety regulations and safety rules, and how to safely operate handguns and mm-hmm. what to do when you're dealing with other people with firearms. So it's that's why I gave you that safety talk, and that's why I didn't want to record it at the time because I wanted right. it to be everyone paying attention to the mm-hmm. safety talk. Right, yep. makes right. sense. Not on performance wise. Yeah, exactly. Well, should we do history then? All right. Yeah. Let's do it. I'm going to start in the mid-10th century with the Fire Lance. Okay. I love the Fire Lance. <laughs> it's the direct ancestor of the firearm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A gunpowder-filled tube attached to the end of a spear and used as a flamethrower, shrapnel was sometimes placed in the barrel so it would fly out together with the flames. It had a range of a few feet. <laughs> well, it's better than, than the end of a lance. You, you, know? could, you could think of it as a grenade on a stick. Like, it's basically yeah. a shaped grenade at the end of a spear, right. and you just hold it out and hope it goes off, boom, in the guy's face. And not in your hands. And not in your hands, yeah. yeah. It's I, like uh, M&M's, melt in I, your opponent's face, you not totally in your hands. You stole my punchline, curse you, Torrin Atkinson. And then we move to uh, arquebus. Okay, yeah. Which comes from the Dutch hakbus, meaning hook tube. Okay, all right. An early muzzle-loading firearm used in the 15th to 17th century. Mm-hmm. Steel plate armor was standard in European combat at the time, and good suits of uh, a plate would usually stop an arquebus ball at long range. It was common practice mm-hmm. to test armor by firing a pistol or arquebus at a new breastplate. Okay, all right, that makes sense. So plate armor, the, the firearms aren't—they don't have the kind of projectile velocity you need to actually pierce steel plate armor. Right, at least I can at, see that. at long range. It, it, it's anyway. interesting yeah. range, that yeah. uh, armor has come full circle and it's now coming back into use. Not in sort of in terms of soldiers wearing a steel plate, but right. they wear Kevlar and things like that to stop right. bullets these days. Yeah. So the arquebus had the added advantage of frightening enemies and horses with the noise. Uh, wind can reduce the accuracy of archery, but has much less of an effect on an arquebusier. Perhaps most important, producing an effective arquebusier required much less training than producing an effective 
bowman. During a siege, it was also easier to fire an arquebus out of loopholes than it was a bow and arrow. It was also possible to load an arquebus and indeed any smooth bore gun with small shot rather than a single ball. Small shot did not pack the same punch as a single round as a, as a single round ball, but the shot could hit and wound multiple enemies. I'd like to interject here a little bit. The Do. the in- advantation of firearms into modern warfare brought the level of battle from focusing on knights and, and the nobility and everything. Mm-hmm. It actually, um, I guess I want to say publicized warfare. It allowed made it more common. Uh, made, made it allowed the, put the common man on, on more of an equal footing with the yeah, knights and sure. actually put them ahead of them because they could take them out with their firearms. Yeah. And it was looked on as a dirty form of warfare. Very dirty. Dirty but effective, which is why everybody did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mentioned smoothbore. Right. Yes, but as opposed to rifling. Yeah, what is rifling? Uh, rifling is a series of grooves in the barrel. There's a, two parts to a barrel in a modern rifled firearm. There's the lands, uh, which are the... Uh, if you look at a, a cross-section of a barrel, it's a bunch of grooves in it. The lands are what would they be the non-cut-out portion of a barrel. The portion that's cut into it is the grooves. Right. So that's, that's a rifled barrel. Yeah, the hills and valleys, sure. similar to that. And the effect of rifling is it increases accuracy and range. That's right. The a rifled barrel is a. It's a. The grooves are twisted throughout the barrel, so it spins the bullet as it goes through. Because those those old muskets with like the smooth bore and all the rest of that stuff, you could be like forty feet away from somebody and be pointing right at them, and it could miss them by ten feet. Right. Yeah, it's like shooting a wiffle ball. Yeah, it was like shooting a wiffle ball, exactly. You just kind of hope they were packed in tight enough that you would hit somebody no matter who you're aiming at. So flintlocks introduced at the beginning of the 17th century. The flintlock rapidly replaced earlier firearm ignition technologies, such as the dog lock, match lock, and wheel lock mechanisms. And it was used for over two centuries. The wheel locks were very, very complex to build. Uh, they had a lot of small, intricate mechanisms similar to, like, a watch. So great for malfunctioning on the field of battle. That's correct. That's and awesome. That's exactly what you want your weapon to do, And the, 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 the match locks and th- those sorts of firearms were actually a burning wick that right. were that was on your, instead of a instead of a flint. So they were prone to be being blown out and things yeah. like that. So they were unreliable. The flintlock actually was consistently able to create ignition. He's got a gun. Mm-hmm. Throw a bucket of water on him. <laughs> Uh, but even with the flintlock, uh, misfires were common. The flint had to be properly maintained as a dull or poorly napped piece of flint would not make as much a spark and would increase the misfire rate dramatically. Moisture was a problem since moisture on the frizzen or damp powder would prevent the weapon from firing. Uh, this meant the flintlock could not be used in rainy or damp weather. Ah, it could be like a strategy, right? If you if you were outgunned by, uh, by riflemen, you could just make sure to meet them in a ra- on a rainy day. That's right. If you're an expert pugilist. You know what would be awesome, though? If the other guys came out and had, like, umbrellas over all the wrestling. The prob- problem with that just is like- you switch to bayonets, and then they're all rusty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just not nice to stab somebody with a rusty bayonet. Oh, no. Yeah, what if you really warfare. don't like that guy? Yeah. It's still not very nice. It's unkind. I mean, come on. It's, it's impolite. It's, yeah. You don't want to be impolite when you're stabbing him in the gut. <laughs> Accidental firing, also a problem for flintlocks. A burning ember left in the barrel could ignite the next powder charge as it was loaded. Ooh. That's not what you... That's I gonna, didn't even think of that. No, that's going to get put a ramrod. That's going to ram your rod right there. You see when... Uh, if you see videos of or movies where they're firing cannons, you'll see after they fire, they put a, a, a wad down, like a, a brush, yeah. big brush. Yeah. That's to extinguish burning embers. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, all right. 
This was avoided also by waiting between shots for any leftover residue to completely burn or running a lubricated cleaning patch down the barrel with the ramrod to extinguish... There you go. To extinguish the embers. Uh, Soldiers on the battlefield could not take these precautions, though. They had to fire as quickly as possible, often firing three to four rounds per minute. Loading and firing at such a pace dramatically increased the risk of an accidental discharge. (laughs) When a flintlock is fired, it sprays a shower of sparks forwards from the muzzle and another sideways out of the flash hole. (laughs) Towards your buddy who's loading his weapon by dumping black powder into it out in the open air. (laughs) Well, that's one reason for firing in volleys was to ensure that one man's sparks didn't ignite the next man's powder as he was in the act of loading. Listen, I would oh, be the nice. touchiest user of a flintlock <laughs> ever because I, this reminds me of the other day I was I was getting groceries and I picked up the one cart that for some reason kept shocking me every 20 feet I pushed it. And oh, like nice. I just became the twitchiest like I was like is it going to shock me yet and I just can't even imagine comparing that to is this gun going to go Blow off in my, in my face. Hands. Well, when you're in battle that's the least of your worries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you got like a heavy cavalry barreling down on you. If you can't be cool under fire, you can't load your flintlock, I guess. I guess so. Uh, leaving an air gap in between the powder and the round, known as short starting, was very dangerous and could cause the barrel to explode. Cartridges are actually a very important development in the 1800s. Okay. Um, they went from having to load the powder and the ball separately to mm-hmm. encasing the powder charge and the projectile That's in one point. cartridge. So into, it's into like, a, like a piece of, into yeah. little, they took all the elements and put them in little paper packages. Yep. Originally, and then they they went to the brass-cased uh, cartridges. The first uh, cartridge rifle was the Dracy needle gun. Ooh. Yes. And how, when was it? It under- actually had the primer, which is what ignites the powder. Uh, uh, on a modern firearm, the firing pin will strike a primer, yeah. which will then cause it to start the ignition of the powder. And on the Dracy needle gun, it was this paper packet. And at the front of the packet, the, the, there was the bullet. And then right behind that was the primer. So the, the needle would go through the packet and strike the primer behind the bullet, and then the, that would ignite the powder. Hmm. Okay. Yes. And uh, what, what was that era? What era was that in? Was uh, that, that was a 1848. Yeah. It was oh, used so against the, uh, the, uh, in the, the, the wars against Austria and against Denmark, I think. And I still think they used it by the time they went to war with France. But by then France had, of course, developed a more advanced firearm. Also, the standard method to open was to tear it open with your teeth. When the draft came halfway through the Civil War, the popular legend is that potential draftees would knock out their front teeth so as not to be able to operate the weapon and therefore not be drafted. Modern cartridge firearms, uh, they really took off in the the late 1800s in terms of design and kind of reached their apex in terms of bolt actions with the the Mauser design in in the 1896, 1898, around that area. I also have a picture of the duck foot pistol. Yeah. Now, what the heck? Okay, so everybody, uh, all the listeners oh, out there, will have to go to the website, causticsodapodcast.com, to check out an image of this thing. But uh, what what was the purpose of this? This It's a, a multiple barrels, like as in the yeah. toes of a duck. Kind the, of uh, the name's derived from the splayed shape of a webbed foot of a duck. In some cases, the term is very accurately descriptive. So basically, you got four, you got one handle and uh-huh. four barrels kind of Pointed in four different directions at the end of the at the end of the gun. Yeah, uh, the principle behind this type of pistol is one of confrontation. Confrontation by I'll start that sentence again. The principle behind this type of pistol is one of confrontation by one person against a group. Hence, it was popular among bank guards, prison wardens, and sea captains. The threat being that one volley can kill several men. 
<laughs> Giuseppe Marco Fieschi really wanted King Louis-Philippe of France dead as a doornail. He wanted revenge for uh, unjustly sentencing him to 10 years in prison, uh, okay. which he thought it was unjust, even though he had been stealing and forging. And so uh-huh, that was uh-huh. why he went to prison. It's, it's, the, it's the classic, uh, everyone in jail is not guilty, right? Yeah. Now, but like uh, any smart assassin, he knew he'd only get one shot. Okay. So he decided to make the most of that shot. And he took 20 guns and fused them together into an infernal machine, <laughs> like a supervillain. Whoever wrote this piece has some pretty florid language. I love this. Well, it's crack.com. So on July 28, 1835, he took his 20-barrel death-o-matic. Uh, <laughs> thank you, crack.com, for this excellent description, by the way. Uh-huh. And aimed it down at the Boulevard du Temple, where King Louis was about to cross the street, accompanied by his sons and staff. As soon as they were in his various lines of fire, <laughs> Fieschi set the machine off, exploding bullets all over the place. He somehow missed his intended target. Louis and his children were only grazed by the hail of bullets, but he did manage to hit a very large number of people, including himself. Oh, nice. <laughs> so it blew up in his face? I guess so. Yeah, nice. He ended up with severe injuries from the explosion, which prevented him from fleeing the scene while twirling his mustache and muttering, Blast! <laughs> But Louis, to Fieschi's surprise, made sure no expense was spared in saving the man's life. I bet you, here's, I bet you I know what happened to him, right? Because you've got these old sort of, you know, uh, like flintlock style things where these single load muskets that he's fused them all together. And there's that, that, that accompanying like blast back, the little flame that shoots out of the thing. He didn't contemplate that 20 of them would probably burn him severely. Maybe light his clothes on fire, the kind of percussive effect. <laughs> not some sort of concussion, right? He might have blown an eardrum out or something like that. I bet you, I bet you it was something along those lines. The whole endeavor doesn't seem to be very well thought out. <laughs> and were there any of the weapons that we shot at the range from the World War One era again? Yes. There was the, the no, Luger. The oh, the Enfield, yeah. of course. The Enfield and the Luger, but the Luger... Uh, only Joe got to fire it, and he fired yeah. it twice. Yes. You broke it. Three. Way to go. I think I got Joe three broke off. It. Two right. and a jam, and then one and a jam. The Luger is a very, very finicky firearm. It's also almost 100 years old. Yes. I'm still going to put the blame on Joe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Precisely. He yeah. ruined it for the rest of us. I, I did it on purpose, so I was the only one. Suck it. Uh, and the Enfield, surprisingly enough, was the weapon that Joe and Torn seemed to be shooting the best with. Yeah. You definitely, the two... It felt the best. Uh, Torn definitely put, I think he put three out of his five rounds right into the black. In the, the other the two were in the safety inspector. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you said you were sorry. So, yeah, no, you guys definitely, uh, if you were to jump in a time machine, World War One would be your era, because you guys could fire those M-fields like nobody's business. Uh, if I go back in time to World War One, I'm just running the hell away. <laughs> yeah. I'm not picking up a weapon and shooting anybody. What a shitty war. Uh, we never actually talked about how the caliber of a bullet works. Caliber is measured in several different ways. Caliber itself is a... Uh, it's like an in inches or something. It, it, it is an in inches, but it, it's system. a certain amount of lead balls that, that go down a barrel, like 16 gauge or 12 gauge. It's a certain yeah. amount of lead mm-hmm. balls that make up a pound. Yeah, That's how many of, of those lead balls will, will dictate the gauge. That's why on a, on a shotgun, a smaller gauge is uh, a bigger or is a bigger barrel, yeah. whereas a larger gauge is a smaller barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, with most rifles and handguns, it's going to be in inches. It's not going to be in a gauge like that. And what so, does it measure? Uh, it measures the distance uh, there's between either the grooves or the lands. 
depending on who's taking the measurement. And mm-hmm. so it's a diameter. It's a diameter. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So and that's the same with uh, with modern that are usually in millimeters. That's right. Well, most millimeter based measurements are from Europe. Yeah. And all inch based ones are out of the U.S. Right. Nash, well, of almost all of them. Yeah. I mean, that makes perfect and, sense. And older ones, like three hundred three British, is, is an inch based. Yeah. So it's point three oh point three oh three of an inch. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the nineteen sixties gyro jet. Okay. Okay. It's a family of unique firearms developed in the 1960s named for the method of a of gyroscopically stabilizing its projectiles. Ooh. Gyrojets fire small rockets rather than inert bullets, which have little recoil and do not require a heavy barrel to resist the pressure of the combustion gases. Okay, so the round is actually firing as it goes. Like it's a little little jet of flame coming out of the back of the projectile. Yes. Yeah. yes. Oh, that's that I, I hate to use the term cool, but effing cool. <laughs> yeah. That's space age shit. Yeah, that's space age well, shit. I only yeah. know about them because of certain science fiction role playing games. Yeah, that that's I've a projectile that gyro jets were advanced technology. A, that will work in space. One of my one of my internet acquaintances uh, has one. Velocity on leaving the tube was very low, but increased to around one thousand two hundred fifty feet per second Ooh, at thirty feet. The result is a very lightweight weapon with excellent ballistics, not powerful and wildly inaccurate. Wildly inaccurate. Nice. <laughs> well, if you think about the it, the Tokarev was inaccurate. This is wildly did, inaccurate. Did you did you ever fire off rockets like in high school? You know, you, you yeah. make those little build those rockets, and you put the parachute in them, and it right. never works, and they always smash on the ground. Think about trying to fire one of those horizontally and hit something. Ah, oh, this is so disappointing because it, it was such a hit. cool idea. <laughs> Long out of production today, they are. A coveted collector's item with prices for even the most common model ranging above $1,000. Uh, they're rarely fired because ammunition, when available, can cost over $100 per round. That, yeah. There is the number one reason why they never took on, right? Because they those little mini rockets are a lot more expensive than just some black powder and a bullet. Yeah. Well, there's a new design in, in firearms that uh, caseless ammunition. Yeah. Which is similar. It's electronically fired. Uh, what do you mean electronically fired? By robots? <laughs> No, no, it it's uh yes, it's discharged by an electronic pulse uh instead of like striking an actual primer. So it, there's no brass or anything like that. It's just a powder a compacted powder charge behind the bullet and it's all one thing. And so when it goes off, all it is is the bullet that goes out the barrel and the powder's all burnt. So oh. there's no ejecting of no brass or anything like that. Yeah. Right. Now the G11 as I understand it basically has pretty much a brick of ammunition and yeah. it, like like it's all one solid piece mm-hmm. and its firing mechanism literally carved out the shape of the bullet with all of its plastic or whatever the the goop coating around it is shunk, and put it into the chamber and fired it and then carved out another so it's got like a little electric motor going grabbing like carving out each bullet out of this brick every time it fires that seems it impossible. has an insanely high rate of fire too it's yeah i think i thought was, i saw some of the, on one of those tv shows like modern weapons or something like that yeah. and uh, is this the rail gun is this what they no, call it no a uh, railgun is something uh, different. A railgun, although I think it's That's there's not some prototypes of them out now. Uh, it uses magnetic energy to magnetic. Uh, yeah, like a like to a train projectile. Oh, yeah. okay, like a bullet train. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, so but only in large calibers. So, uh, right now, I guess you yeah. could you could make a small caliber railgun. The problem is you need a very long barrel to get the acceleration <laughs> up. So okay, so take <laughs> railgun out of the equation. The caseless these caseless guns are. Has any of them become mass mass produced? Is uh, there, no. Is there any plans for it? Like why are they just too expensive? I would expensive? imagine that there are. It, why why it's hasn't a secret. it? Why hasn't it taken off? It's a secret. Because modern rifles are good enough. 
Right. And these rifles are insanely expensive. You could, you could kill a guy with today's modern firearms. Lay that pistol down, babe, lay that pistol down. Pistol packing mama, lay that pistol down. Oh, drinking beer in a cabaret, was I having fun? Until one night she caught me right, now I'm on the run. Oh, lay that pistol down, babe, lay that pistol down. Pistol packing mama, lay that pistol down. Oh, I see you every night, Bing, and I'll woo you every day. I'll be your regular mama, and I'll put that gun away. Oh, lay that pistol down, babe. Lay that pistol down. Pistol packing mama, lay the thing down before it goes off and hurts somebody. Oh, she kicked out my windshield and she hit me over the head. She cussed and cried and said I'd lied and she wished that I was dead. Oh, lay that pistol down, babe, lay that pistol down. Pistol packing mama, lay that pistol down with three tough gals. From deep down Texas way, we got no pals. They don't like the way we play. We're a rough, rootin', tootin', shootin' trio. But you're see my sister Cleo. She's a terror, make no error, but there ain't no lassie fair. Here's what we tell her. Lay that pistol down, babe, lay that pistol down. Pistol backin' mama, lay that pistol down. in a cabaret was I having fun till one night it didn't seem right now I'm on the run oh lay that pistol down babe lay that pistol down pistol back and mama lay that pistol down oh pistol back and mama lay that pistol In the news, August 2010, a Polish man living in Germany spent five years with a bullet in the back of his head, having forgotten he was shot because he was drunk when it happened. <laughs> well, so was it protruding from his skull, or was it all the way inside his brain? That might have had something to do with the memory recall part of it as well. Police in the western city of Bochum said doctors had found a 22 caliber round after the 35-year-old asked them to remove what he thought was a cyst. Uh, yes. 
So probably Oops. the the little like the little butt end of the bullet was kind of like right under the skin, and he felt this bump, and he thought it was like a cyst or a growth or something, and it was just the bullet that didn't go all the way through his skull. My question is, how drunk do you have to be to forget getting shot in the head? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he might have had a concussion or something like that as well. You know, they said the man received. Uh, they said the man recalled receiving a blow to the head around midnight at a New Year's Eve party in 2004 or 2005. <laughs> it is thought it might have been a stray bullet fired in celebration. <laughs> it may have been shot fired up in the air, which entered his head on the way down, a, spokesman, a police spokesman told reporters. There you go. You always think about that. You see these guys shooting bullets in the air, and you always think to yourself, you know, those bullets have to come Joe, down somewhere. Joe and I talked about that on the way to the range. Yeah. That, uh, it's it's really dangerous. Like the bu- when people are shooting guns in the air, those bullets are coming back down, and their terminal velocity is very high. Yeah, yeah they're designed to be aerodynamic, so they have wind resistance. It's called celebratory well. gunfire. Uh, Thirty caliber rounds can have a terminal velocity of three hundred feet per second, mm-hmm. and the larger fifty caliber bullets can go up to five hundred feet per second. Isn't like kind of standard muzzle velocity? Is in the like six to nine hundred feet per second range, isn't it? Uh, no, that's that's slow. Oh, is that slow? Yeah, okay. the uh, uh, it's over a thousand. A thousand to two thousand is generally common for Okay, arms. all right. So it's slow, but The still. information I've got is a bullet traveling at only 150 feet per second to, to 170 feet per second can penetrate human skin, and at 200 feet per second, it can penetrate the skull. So yeah, that's probably what happened to but this guy. But you don't even need to penetrate the skull to have, actually have an intracranial injury. Intracranial? Because, which means inside the cranium. Yeah. Uh, so what can happen is you can get hit. It doesn't penetrate but the shock wave will mm, go through mm-hmm. and of course bounce around inside and cause all sorts of damage to the brain well inside. this guy uh, this guy obviously suffered some sort of brain injury <laughs> he told in, us in he, 2004 2005, 2005 somewhere around like there uh, quote he told us he remembered having a sore head but that he wasn't really one for going to the doctor <laughs> The man who has lived in Germany for several years is expected to be released from hospital later this week. The bullet, which was lodged in his scalp and did not penetrate his skull, was removed. And I'll go to my uh, recently news story, which is how I know about the falling bullets. Uh, January 1st, 2010, Decatur, Georgia, a four-year-old boy was killed by a falling bullet from celebratory gunfire while attending a New Year's Eve church service in Decatur. Oh, a church, a church service, service on New Year's Eve. What could be more wholesome? What could be more churchy than firing your gun in the air? Yeah, so, careful. You might hit God up there. <laughs> well, nobody in the church fired, so the th- they, they don't even know who fired this. So what right. happened was somebody, some idiot, went outside, yeehaw, New Year, blam, blam, fired in the air, <laughs> and possibly miles away, some kid in a church gets hit as the bullet actually broke through the ceiling, I suppose. The and, sad and part is, and killed him. He, the person who actually did this might have actually yelled, yeehaw. Yeah. Might actually happen. It is George, after all. So if this can be our public service announcement, don't fire your guns up in the air. Yeah. The bullets have to come down, and they come down fast. Formerly news, February 1990, David Zabak attempted to hold up H&J Leather and Firearms Limited, a gun shop located in Renton Highlands near Seattle, Washington. About 4.40 p.m. that day, he entered the crowded shop and announced his intention to rob it by telling everyone to put their hands on the counter and saying if anybody moved, he'd kill them. He then spotted a uniformed policeman having coffee with Wendell Woodall, the shop's owner. What happened next is less than clear in terms of who shot first, but there was an exchange of gunfire between David Zabak, the would-be robber, Timothy Lally, an 18-year veteran of the King County Police Force, and Danny Morris, one of the shop's clerks. This guy won a Darwin Award. I remember this story from the Darwin Awards. 
Zabak's weapon was a 38 caliber semi-automatic pistol. The clerk, Morris, fired a 10 millimeter semi-automatic pistol. Uh, the policeman fired a 9 millimeter semi-automatic pistol. As for the participation of others, according to Renton Police Captain, although several other customers had guns and pulled them, they did not shoot. The only ones involved in the exchange of lead were Zabak, Lally, and Morris. Crime scene investigators located 47 expended cartridge, cartridge cases in the shop. Mm-hmm. The subsequent autopsy revealed 23 gunshot wounds. Yeah. <laughs> Ballistics identified rounds from seven different weapons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I totally remember this story from the Darwin Awards. This guy won a Darwin Award because he tried to rob a gun store. It's That's unclear awesome. how many shots were fired, in part because some of the suspect shots struck ammunition on the counter, causing the ammunition to explode. <laughs> That's Zabak, who had fired three times, was shot three times in the chest and once in the arm. He died in the hospital about four hours after the shooting. No one else was injured. 1871, Clement Vallandigham, U.S. congressman and political opponent of Abraham Lincoln, Uh died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He was so distraught over Abraham Lincoln's execution or uh, assassination. No, uh, you would think. Uh But no, he was uh, in court. Represented a defendant in a murder case. He demonstrated how the murder victim could have inadvertently shot himself. The gun, which he believed to be unloaded, discharged and mortally wounded him. <laughs> Did he win the case? The defendant was acquitted. Uh, <laughs> that you know what? That is that's being a good lawyer right yeah, there. That is taking taking it to heart. He literally. took a bullet for his client. Pop culture? There's a there's a great website uh, for gun nerds, people that like guns about movies. Internet Movie Firearms Database. Oh, okay. IMFDB.org. That's right. Oh. And what is what happens there? It's b- exactly what it says, where we've got the Internet Movie Database, which tells you all about the movies. The yeah. IMFDB, you can look up movies and find out which weapons they used in them. So you can look up aliens and find out what they used uh, to represent the futuristic carbines that they were using. Right, right. I think yeah. it was a Tommy gun. The M4A1 oh, no, pulse rifle. Gun. Yep. Can I type in Duckfoot Pistol and find that was, out? Uh, M1A1 Thompson and a Remington 870. Well, I have also from Crack.com. Great site, by the way. Movie Myths. Oh, okay. Cocking the gun. All right. I'm sure this has bothered you many times when you've watched movies or TV. It has. What, they unnecessarily cock it. What's happening when a gunman cocks the hammer on a gun? That click is the sound of a hammer being cocked back, which implies that the gun is ready to fire now. But the gun was, of course, already ready to fire. Yeah. The cocking of the gun to show you mean business must date back to Westerns when those old revolvers forced you to cock them between each shot, something that was made obsolete 150 years ago. Yeah, what do they call that? They call that, like, single-action versus double-action pistols? The single-action revolvers, you'd have to cock it, and that would ready it for firing. Mm-hmm. But every time you shot it, you'd have to cock it again. Yeah. So with, a, with modern single-action pistols, every time you shoot with a semi-automatic... It uh, cocks the hammer every time the slide moves back and forth. Now, what's a double-action revolver? Is that Double-action, you pull the trigger, and uh, it cocks the hammer and fires at the same time. So that's a modern pistol. That's a modern pistol. Yeah, yeah. And when movies show somebody with a gun that doesn't have a hammer back there to be cocked, like a shotgun or assault rifle, they substitute either the pumping of the shotgun or pulling back the slide on the automatic. It's the only way to get that cool clicking dramatic sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that only serves the purpose of ejecting an empty shell and sliding a new bullet into the chamber, something that had already happened the last time you fired it. If that was actually happening in the in the movie, they would be ejecting a live round. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some movies then. 
probably my favorite gun sequence in any film of all time ever is Predator. Mm. The first time I saw somebody actually carry a minigun into action. <laughs> all painless. When Jesse the Body Ventura mowed down like that entire like acre. Actually, no. Jesse the Body got killed. Yeah. And then Arnold mowed down like an entire no. acre of... No, it wasn't Arnold No, either. it wasn't Arnold. It was the, uh, the black guy. Oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Apollo Creed. No. <laughs> the bald black guy. Can I have me some fun? Oh, there you Can go. Can I have me some fun? That guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Uh, we mowed down like an entire acre of of forest, of Amazon yeah. rainforest, in like a single blow. And then you go, you go. I remember going, "What the hell is that thing?" And looking up minigun and finding out that it's actually an, a, a helicopter mounted attack yeah. weapon yeah. that. Never carried into slightly battle. more believable when the Terminator carries it because he is in fact made of metal. Yes, exactly. So. It, 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 completely unrealistic from a small arms perspective, but I still I love it nonetheless. Sure. My I've got two favorite gun scenes. Okay. Uh, the first one is uh, the in Paths of Glory when they're charging the trench and there's just that scene. It's oh, not Kubrick. really a gun scene. But it's just the scene of them going across the trench. And the That's guys an amazing getting, movie. Getting blasted by the machine guns. Yeah, it is an amazing movie. It's an anti-war movie. Yeah. But uh, that, that's, a, that's a very powerful shot. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great gun, gun scene. And then the other one, on the opposite end of the spectrum, is uh, Heat. The end of heat. Oh, they, oh yeah. when they're when when they're they're shooting up the city streets. That's right. Based loosely on that uh, yeah. that that bank robbery that happened in Los Angeles yeah. in the eighties. Yeah, there's some fantastic gun porn in there. Oh yeah, and you know what the amazing <laughs> part was again, uh, ca- harkening back to my military experience, um, when you when you get caught in in an ambush, uh, the only thing that you can do is actually charge. Uh, properly set up ambush will kill you. In very short order, and so the, the the tactical thing to do is actually to charge the person laying down the ambush, and the best method to use to do that is called pepper potting, and that's where one person moves position and then lays covering fire, and that right. that gives the other person the opportunity to move position. Right. And that first sequence, when they first come out of the bank and they start shooting at them, it is textbook pepper potting. That whole sequence when they're going from car to car and he's shooting and Val Kilmer moves position right. and then he's shooting and De Niro moves position and he's shooting and Sizemore moves position and he's shooting. I get his absolute textbook. And you know that the military advisor on that show knew what he was doing. It was so beautifully shot and so wonderfully choreographed. I, I have to agree with you 100%. Yeah, I, I read something else that um, mentions about how for like every, I don't remember the figure, but let's say 500,000 bullets that are shot, one of them might hit yeah. a person. It's astronomically high. Yeah. 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 Uh, what about you, Torn? What's your... A uh... uh, couple of gun... I'm not a, I'm not a gun nut by any yeah. stretch of the but imagination. But you have to appreciate a movie that has some good sequences in it. Sure. I enjoyed Miller's Crossing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who doesn't? Yeah. Especially, uh, particularly uh, thinking of the scene with... Um, Albert Finney and when the Tommy to gun. Him, when yeah. they come to kill him at his house. Man yeah. always was an artist with the Thompson. Yeah. yeah. Oh, when he shoots the guy in the leg and then shoots him in the top of his head. Yeah. And then and Danny and then, Boy's playing. Yeah. And lovely. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then he jumps out the window and slides down onto the street, and he can see the assassins in one of his rooms in his house, and he's out on the street, and yeah. he shoots them. Until it crashes and burns? <laughs> no, he, shoot, he shoots the guy. shoots the guy in the window. In first. the window, who also has a Tommy gun, so, his to- so he starts shooting his Tommy gun while he's being shot in the back and shoots the <laughs> chandelier and the ceiling yeah. and everything. That's right. And then the other hoods in the uh, getaway car. In the getaway car start down the road and he just walks on the road and starts shooting them and and it crashes and yeah, burns. Yeah, crashes and burns. Yeah, that that Miller's Crossing is still probably my favorite Coen Brothers movie of all time. I agree. It's amazing. Yeah, I agree. Another great scene for that movie is when they're busting up the uh the 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 still and they Right. <laughs> Throw come out alive or whatever, and they start shooting back, and everyone's oh, shooting right. at everyone. Yeah. Yeah. The, the cops are all lined up in the street. One of those cops, and Sam, Sam Raimi, Raimi, and he gets blasted right away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should mention the uh, "This is my boomstick" from Army of Darkness. Yeah. Oh yeah, one of the most iconic uses of a shotgun in movies. All yeah. right, listen up, you primitive screwheads. <laughs> The 12 gauge double barreled Remington, Smart's top of the line. You can find this in the sporting goods department. That's right, this sweet baby was made in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Retails for about $109.95. It's got a walnut stock, cobalt blue steel, and a hair trigger. Another scene uh, in uh, Boondock Saints when Billy Connolly is out. There's flaws with the movie, I'll give it that, but that scene is awesome. When they, and uh, Willem Dafoe was deconstructing it later on. I, I thought that was great. Oh, where Willem where he, walks in and he's, he's talking like, about what happened. There's seven this. guys with machine guns, and then it's Billy Connolly with two pistols, and he's yeah, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Well, now I guess we come to comic books. Uh, yeah. Well, obviously you got guys like the Punisher. Punisher. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's the first one right out of the gate. All the movies are an abortion, but actually, I didn't mind the Thomas Jane one so bad. But uh, Punisher Warzone, oh my god! I watched that in anticipation of this podcast, and it was extremely horrible <laughs> extremely horrible if it wasn't for the fact that it was on my pvr and i could watch the whole thing at like three times speed i never would have finished it <laughs> oh the horribleness that you missed by doing that though <laughs> oh god it is horrible horrible not a uh, ton of comic books though superheroes tend to have avoid powers weapons well there's hellboy firearms. hellboy's got a very specific That's gun that right. he uses mm-hmm. so i have no idea what kind of gun it's supposed a mini to be, howitzer <laughs> But he also has it in the movies as well. Yeah, big revolver, true. right? It is yeah, a giant a revolver. Fires ginormous revolver. Holy water bullets or something. <laughs> I, he's got, I, I think he's got all that. kinds of bullets that he can put in there. It's kind of like a, yeah. you know, like Hawkeye's arrows sort of thing, right? And uh, then of course there's Deadshot from the DC universe, who's an expert marksman. You haven't even talked about Dirty Harry yet. Yeah, I was just about to say you're going to talk about iconic like firearms and movies. Dirty Harry, mm. hands down. Yeah, no kidding. Or, or just even any Clint Eastwood, like his, you know, the All man the, without a name. Yeah. Under the art category, I have one small thing. Walt Creel of Birmingham, Alabama, uses a deadly weapon, ironically, to create images of sweet southern wildlife. Brandishing a rifle, he fires twenty-two caliber bullets through four by six white painted aluminum panels to form images of a deer, owl, a rabbit, a possum, squirrel, and a bird in his project, de-weaponizing the gun. Oh, okay. There's a picture of a squirrel. Oh, wow. We're going to have to put that up on the website for sure, mm-hmm. com, because that is a – it's very recognizably a squirrel. Although I've seen the pictures on how he does it. He doesn't shoot from a long way away. Like the <laughs> end of the barrel is literally up against what he's hitting. Oh, yeah. that's so, totally that, – Still, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah they're, I'm, they're, I'm uh, so much less impressed now. I, mean, yeah, I was going to say, that's like, some pretty damn good shooting. <laughs> even from, like, five feet away, you at least uh, put an element of challenge into it. Come on. Yeah. Wow, that's not sporting at all. <laughs> it's, it, you're right. It's art. Yeah. 
briefly, because there's a lot of them, video games. Duke Nukem. Well, Duke Nukem, sure, but a lot of those weapons are I mean, for every outlandish and crazy. Yeah. The, the, the ones that uh, definitely could, the Call of Duty series, Marvel right. Honor, stuff like that. Right. Uh, the one that, that I've played the most of that's definitely more small arms than anything else. Right now I'm playing Team Fortress 2, but again, a lot of those are rocket launchers and things like yeah. that. Would be Counter-Strike. The really cool thing about Counter-Strike is you start off with basically only pistols. And very little, and you have to buy your other weapons. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets a knife, everybody gets a pistol and ammunition. And as you play the game, you start earning money. And then you can start affording to buy yourself better and better weapons right. as you like level up the money that you've got. And the weapons are all very realistic. The counter-terrorists start off with the USP-45. The terrorists start off with the Glock 18. The Glock is less, quite a bit less accurate and not as good. The counter-terrorists tend to have a bit of an advantage early on. Later on, the, the terrorists can buy the AK-47. Counter-terrorists get the Colt Commando, things like that. It's uh, really cool, and you can kind of tailor the weapons that you buy based on the style of play that you like. So it's like kind of like Gran Turismo 4, only for guns. Yeah. Let's go. 